Now I'll just have to settle in and remember what the intro spiel is. This is the hard part. This <laughs> this is where you end up calling for an edit. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I am your host, Lars Wikman, and today we are running a really lean ship, so I will not be introducing any of my co-hosts. I'll call out to our sponsors, which is Groxio, Career Fuel for Programmers, and I will apparently call out my own company, which is kind of awkward, but underyou.io, look us up if you want some Elixir consulting done. Without further ado, I'll go ahead and introduce our very special guest. And I'm, I didn't actually ask for a name pronunciation up front, so I will <laughs> give it my best stab. Uh, welcome to the show, Jonathan Mention. Um, pretty close. Yeah. Jonathan Mention. Um, so it's a German thing, but yeah, pretty close. Oh, I'll Good take to be it. on the show. All right. Uh, before we get into what brought you to the show and what brought you to reach out, um, I actually want to just get the inside scoop on your path into Elixir or Erlang, as it might be. I don't know. What do you do day to day and how did you get there? Um, it really started out for me. I was living together with another programmer um, in, a, in a shared apartment. And um, he at some point bought one of the, the early Elixir and Phoenix books. I believe it was Elixir 1.3. If I'm not mistaken. So I know there was a programming Elixir 1.4. I don't know if there was a 1.3. 1.4. It, mm. it was quite at the start still, I believe. Yeah. And uh, he never actually read them, um, but I did. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I, I really liked the ideas in there. Um, I thought that they were really cool, especially the classic... Um, Phoenix being able to handle a lot of clients at the same time via sockets um, impressed me a lot. Um, and I just kind of had it in the back of my mind for a while. Um, and I also just started uh, in uh, my own company back then, or which uh, where I worked together with uh, two other founders. And uh, we kind of stumbled over a project um, that was in the... How would I describe it? It was kind of a classic, you have a question with four answers kind of thing. Um, and basically it was around money. So you would pay some money to enter a game um, and then you would get be asked multiple questions where you can give those answers. And then depending on your result, you might uh, win some money or you might lose some money. Um, and basically for this, I kind of had to or the approach I took how to implement this was with a persistent socket connection where I really had all the control um, over that game on the server side. And uh, it really made sense to me to, to use Elixir for this. And yeah, we, we implemented that project. It didn't really work out business-wise, but technologically it worked really well. Um, and that kind of got me started. And I realized that I don't have to wait for a unicorn project to use this but basically it's um in the end for for most cases you're doing if they're not really special um, it doesn't really matter if i go with elixir or something else i can apply it just the same um even if it's just a standard i don't know a crud case with an api or something like that 
and yeah that was kind of my start i've i've never looked back i really enjoy working in elixir uh, since and are you running your own business now as well um i left the business actually quite recently um in august uh this year um and i'm now working at a customer of the business um so i kind of transitioned over um and i started doing that uh, at the start of october so uh yeah right. uh, it's still quite new but um i tra transitioned away to a customer uh, so employment could be a good choice given the current market uh, yeah the market right now is rather rough um it was not very enjoyable so yeah all right and the reason why you came to the show is that you have been working on something with the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you've done? What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of the projects we did at my last company involved OpenID in some kind of way. Um, we were working with people from various industries, um, from a bank, for example, which provided their own OpenID server but also various other projects where we had to build in off and OpenID was kind of the default thing to go for. Um, and I was always a bit annoyed by it because there, there, there was some stuff around, but not really to my liking um, for, for multiple reasons. Um, one of the the main thing was um, there was this library back then there was a bit less than there is now but there was this library called OIDCC which is also the basis I built on now and it was really not doing that well with all the the HTTP calls for example with TLS um, it had a lot of missing features a lot of parts security relevant parts were missing and um yeah there was a lot of other implementations as well but all of them kind of lacked on some end or the other i wasn't seeing like this complete picture anywhere that i uh, envisioned and um since i'm part of the security working group and i think this is something that i think is important it's a quite uh common standard by now the ecosystem should really provide something stable and secure um, and so I brought it up for a stipend. Um, I wasn't initially not thinking of doing it myself. Um, I later on actually also applied for the stipend with the business, um, which um, was a bit expensive because, you know, paying a business to do those kind of things, even if we lowered rates, it was, it was more than uh, the foundation was willing to pay. And I think rightfully mm. so in the end. Um, and then it kind of stopped from there um, because nobody knew someone to actually do it. Um, and basically now in August, when I left my, my job and I had some pause coming up, I was thinking, why not use that pause to actually implement that stipend? Um, and I reapplied. Um, it was a very quick process this time because I already applied once. Basically, all I had to do was to um, see if everything was still accurate from, um, what was it, a year back or something like that, and adjust the rates and stuff like that. And uh, it was a very quick process. I got it approved in like a week's time and started work on it, which was really great. 
um, the the contents really or the the goals of that project was to provide an open ID implementation um, for the maybe the people that don't know that much about open ID. Um, the idea of open ID um, is basically to authenticate and authorize users um, with um, basically um, a relaying parties to a server that provides that authentication. So um, basically, if if you have a central server, the idea is to have a central server that provides authentication for all your products, or it could also be a public provider like uh, login with Google, login with Facebook, or that kind of thing. And the idea is to relay securely this authentication information to another application so that it can authenticate that user securely and uh, make, make sure that it wasn't tampered with and all those kind of things. And the goal of my project was to basically at least support all the base um, authentication flows. There's different ones to pick from, but uh, some of them are more for like uh, front-end only, like single-page applications while uh, or apps, while some are more for the classic ser client-server model. And I wanted to um, at least cover the client-server model uh, quite well. And I also wanted to support most of the elevated security things that the standard contains. So just as one example, when I send a request to authenticate the user to a server, I can either do that in clear text or I can take the whole request and package it in an encrypted token and send it over that way. And if anyone was snooping in the middle, they couldn't read what was requested anymore. And those were the kind of things I wanted to cover, just so that if the server also supports it, we automatically offer a more secure integration. Yeah. Also really important to me was that we certify the whole thing. OpenID um, is also a foundation um, mm -hmm. for, for that ecosystem. Um, and they offer a certification program uh, where you can participate. They have uh, quite a comprehensive test suite where you can uh, test your integration against. And if you do so, um, they will basically then give you a stamp like this is an OpenID certified implementation. And people that are looking for uh, an implementation, they can actually see that it has a stamp on, so it can't be that bad. It has like a minimum standard you have to fulfill so you get in there, basically. That's That's really interesting because... I find that sometimes that's the challenge with libraries that you pick up to that are sort of, oh, this solves this standard or this implements this format. And it's like, sometimes it's just an implementation someone threw together and shared kindly where they mostly try to cover their own needs. And it sounds yeah. like you ran into a bunch of those or where we're like, yeah, but we don't no one has time to implement the really fancy security bits. So let's just do the basics. Like most libraries mm -hmm. probably only cover really the use cases they need and foresee. Yeah. But living up to a standard really to... is a different matter. Yeah. The goal here really is to fulfill the complete <clears throat> standard and actually multiple of them. There's um, It's comprised of multiple specification documents. Um, some for the automatic configuration discovery from the server. So you know, for example, which security features does it support? There's another one that uh, covers the, the complete flows, um, like the authentication flows. 
um, there is some that cover logout. There's, there's, it's just, yeah, made up out of a lot of different standards. And um, yeah, I chose a selection of standards that I thought would be a good starting point, but by no means uh, did I implement all the standards. And also not all of the standards actually make sense in the paradigm that Elixir or Erlang is normally used. For Are example, you saying we're not building in mobile apps with Elixir and Erlang? Is um, that what you're saying? <laughs> no, that is not what I'm saying. I'm uh, very aware of LifeView native and uh, other efforts. Um, and my goal wasn't to cover 100% of the use cases. It was yeah. supposed to cover the ones that were are actually already here and are being used. And um, I could have spent three times as much um, time on that stipend than I did now. But it was important to me to lay a solid foundation. And if we see that the need arises, for example, so that we do um, kind of more the app-based workflows, for example, with, uh, with an implicit um, authentication flow, which is one of these, um, then we can do so. Um, but um, yeah, it is not there right now. But it also means that there is a fairly complete implementation where people can contribute just the parts they find missing, which like, yes, if, if we have a certified library, that makes it easier to. Uh, yes. So to uh, contributions are very welcome. If something is missing for you, um, obviously a pull request is very much appreciated. Um, I also set up in the discussions area of the GitHub repository, uh, I set up like this idea group where I put in kind of the missing standards I know about right now. Um, the idea being you can just press an upvote if you're interested, just so I can gauge if there's any interest in the whole topic. And uh, that is also very much appreciated. Yeah, that sounds smart. Now, OpenID and OpenID Connect specifically, I guess this is. Uh... I guess, is there any other OpenID bit than OpenID Connect? I've only heard of OpenID no. Connect. Yeah. <laughs> there is just OpenID Connect. Yeah. And OpenID Connect is OAuth 2 plus yes. some additional stuff, right? Yes. Um, so OAuth 2 handles the basic flows underneath it, so the basic authorization flows. It does not, however, solve authentication. So OAuth is all about get a token from, for example, Facebook to talk to the Facebook API. It isn't about proving you are actually Lars. Um, that is often still done, but that's not the goal of OAuth. Um, the goal of OpenID is to layer that on top. So basically we're not doing authorization only, we're also doing authentication. And then also various add-ons to the standard in other areas. One of them, for example, is the, the whole metadata discovery uh, mechanism where which allows to automatically configure the client uh, securely um, so that it matches the server uh, capabilities as well, um, which is also now finding its way back into OAuth. So it's kind of intermixed and both are copying from each other and layering, layering on top and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that metadata discovery just brought me back to some very uh painful saml memories so i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i think it's a bit 
cleaner in OpenID compared to SAML. I also had to I, go through that once. Yeah, I've I've had much better experiences with OAuth and OpenID than I have had with SAML. <laughs> yeah, plus plus one for me. I, I I had to do that a long time ago as well, and I don't remember enjoying that very much. No, too much XML. Yeah. Um, were there what were the reasons to not kind of grab an existing library or expand an existing library. I, I know there's uh, OpenID Connect for the Ascent library, which is an Elixir library yep. that does auth. I think it also covers a bunch of other providers. Um, it is actually based on a pre-existing library. Um, so um, there was this company called Indigo, I believe they were called, uh, which produced this Erlang OIDCC lib. Uh, so we've two Cs at the end. Um, and unfortunately, and I'm not part of Indigo, I don't know the whole internal story, but I believe their only Elixir or Erlang dev left the company and the, the, the repo got, got kind of outdated. And I actually took over maintenance of that quite some time ago. Um, the problem with it was though that, um, it had some fundamental issues. It was quite old, like all the stuff like how does uh, an HTTP client work, for example, HTTPC and SSL and that kind of stuff, or also um, uh, JWT token validation and stuff like that. All of that was quite old, but as at least of all the clients I looked at, um, it was still the one covering kind of the most of the OpenID specification. And so I built on top of that, um, but to be honest, I took most of the tests over, not necessarily the actual implementation. Um, just, yeah, I, 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 it needed a bit of a restructuring as well for covering other parts of the specification that were not covered before. And the current shape wasn't that easy, easily translatable. So if you were using OIDCC before current new major release, um, there is, um, there's quite the migration journey because I was not trying to keep things um, like with with the least amount of breaking changes or anything like that. So kind of a clean slate, but based on a on a pre-existing yeah. library. Yeah, yeah, that um, sounds like a reasonable approach. I... Also, very important to me was, uh, or also <clears throat> to the foundation, is that it is rooted in Erlang. I didn't want to have an Elixir or a mixed dependency, basically, for uh, the library. So, um, yeah, I didn't want to take anything that it was in Elixir to, to do the work on. Um, I did include Elixir bindings to make the usage of it easier. Also, for example, there's... Uh, child specifications for everything. So you can easily add it to your supervisor without uh, creating child specifications by hand or anything like that. But um, the core really is in Erlang and you don't need any Elixir to run it if if your application is in Erlang. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a smart and I think that's kind of a policy of, of the EF that they generally don't sponsor work that can't be used across the ecosystem i'm sure they will for if the reason is good enough like yeah uh, it's always a discussion it seems like but yeah uh as we saw with like telemetry which i believe came out of the ef initially um 
that was also shipped as an Erlang library. And I don't think there has been any Elixir bindings out on top of it because it's such a small API surface. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I, I see the difference mostly in uh, things like I had to, I used um, records in Erlang. I don't think they're very nice to use in Elixir or mm. not what an Elixir dev expects. So I kind of convert them to structs and the other way around um, in the bindings. Also another place was the child specifications. I didn't want people to have, I just want the standard flow where you use the module name, put it in your supervisor and it runs uh, without building things yourself. And also that is something that the Elixir bindings provide. Yeah, so that tells me that it, this thing is holding some kind of state. Now I'm a little bit curious about like what kind of state do you have to hold while while doing? Um, it holds basically the the the, uh, the provider metadata, so uh, yep. which um, encryption algorithms are supported and that kind of information, and. Also, it holds separately the um, basically the the keys of the provider, so you can validate your tokens. Basically, to validate the signatures, or if you want to encrypt something for the server, you can look in there. And there is a lot of projects that are more like one processor request, uh, kind of like PHP, for example, where all of those things are loaded every time, and maybe there's a cache. But uh, yeah, here in Elixir, it just made sense to. Um, put this somewhere in a gen server so we don't have to load it all the time. Yeah, that's that's a nicety of of being on the beam. Um, and something that can get really uh, tricky. Like I, I've done a decent bit of this type of stuff in Python. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you always end up writing them to file. Or yeah. usually the implementations will write them to file or if you're really lucky there's like a pluggable store and you can put them elsewhere or but yeah uh, and it's very nice that in our our ecosystem we have a very easy way of just like keeping in memory storage um that's still comfortably available through the app right? yeah I already got a bit uncomfortable to do because I decided to put it in an uh, ads table um, so that I can have concurrent reads on it. And yeah. um, one thing that can happen is that if you get a token from the, the provider and uh, it actually uses a rotate new key, and basically you have to check internally, do I already have it? Ah, oh, I don't have it. So you have to refresh. And I kind of got into a funny place where things were now asynchronous and I had race conditions. It was very simple to solve in the end, but... Uh, yeah, I had to yeah, invest so you a could, bit to you make could get this... something signed back while you were rotating the keys and suddenly it wouldn't validate, for example, I guess. Yeah, or also if multiple tokens come in at the same time, all using a new key that we don't have yet, we want to load it once and stuff ah. like that. Um, it was rather simple to do. Um, before I had a few gen server uh, casts, uh, before I had an ads table, and um, they were obviously not blocking, but when I then later do a call to read data, they would sequentially come later. So I was guaranteed to always have the newest result. But as soon as I put all of that into an ads table, that obviously no longer applied. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I had to 
do a bit of work there. But uh, it's not that complicated now that it's here and uh, it works rather well. Had you written Erlang before? Some of it, but not that much. Um, I've looked at a lot of Erlang. I've also even looked at the, the core, uh, so OTP itself, and did some fixes in there before. But I've never actually written a bigger project now. How did you like it? I've been very curious to ask someone in the uh, that does a lot of Erlang to kind of give me the intro or like just sit down <laughs> and work work with Erlang a bit, just because I, like I can read it decently, mm -hmm. but I've never used it for anything. Um, I mean, there's the, the classic things first, like the syntax with all the commas and semicolons and dots and putting them in the right place, um, which takes a bit getting used to, I think. But really, the, the main concepts, they still work besides structs. So it is not that big a rethink, just write the same thing, format it a bit differently. But where I really saw the difference was in the tooling around it. For example, in Elixir, I'm used to just do mix format and it will be great. But in Erlang, there is some projects like Erl uh, format from, uh, from WhatsApp. But then, for example, it's not completely up to date. If you use the newest features from Erlang, like uh, the maybe expressions, for example, it will just not work. Actually, mm. opened a pull request to fix that as well. But uh, it's it was a lot of these tiny things that were rather hard. Um, and then also the combination of doing both Erlang and Elixir in the same repository, in the same application, was quite hard. So. For example, I wanted to generate uh, XDoc documentation for both the Erlang and the Elixir code. Yeah. But Erlang, for example, emits documentation chunks if you want to, but into a separate file, not in the actual module, but Elixir puts it inside. And then uh, depending if you use uh, the rebar XDoc thing, for example, it looks in files, but the mix one looks in the module, but not both. And it's it was kind of yeah it, it took some playing around and a few issues and a few projects to get it to a point where it actually was working well now that's interesting i i bet like i bet you can get really comfortable with the erlang tooling i bet you can get and i know i'm fairly comfortable with the elixir tooling but i hadn't considered what happens when you start mixing <laughs> and it's it's a bit of an unusual case but also, I guess not because like Elixir itself, I believe is a decent bunch of Elixir as well as a bunch of Erlang. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I guess the Elixir language project itself would have kind of that issue uh, along with probably a decent bunch of projects. Like one very common way to tackle this, I guess, is to ship Erlang and Elixir quite separately. Mm -hmm. um, so usually you see things like, oh, we've uh, we've made an Elixir adaptation of this Erlang library, and that's usually a separate library. But in this case, do you ship them from like the same repo? Yeah, uh, it's the same hex package as well. Um, it is just one contains both of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I saw that it was possible because, for example, the JWT library that I'm using to validate all the tokens. Um, is also published uh, with both rebar and mix. Um, okay. 
So I knew it was possible, but uh, not really how. Um, and yeah, it took some tinkering to get it to run. But that's probably something that should be in a blog post somewhere. Like, if you really want to do this, here's how you do it. Huh. <laughs> this is something I haven't actually looked into, but I kind of assume you could write uh, sort of ergonomic elixir modules, except for structs, potentially but ergonomic elixir modules in Erlang, unless Erlang forbids like the, the module name structure. I think you can probably write more or less everything, actually even including structs, I believe, because a struct in the end also just an extra key in the map. Yeah. Uh, this is not how you're supposed to use it, but I think you could <laughs> pretty much do everything. Mm. I'm not, I, not sure about metaprogramming, defining macros for Elixir in Erlang. Uh, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I know there are limitations to uh, that prevent like using macros from Erlang, uh, but defining them, yeah. I don't know. That's a compiled time construct. <laughs> so I've definitely tried something recently. So I was poking around with Elixir Google API clients, the generated ones. Mm -hmm. And they generate a lot of modules. So I was trying to trim that down. But it's very nice to have structs. Mm -hmm. The problem is, uh, like, uh, or something I tried was actually, if I create a map and just give it a struct key, will it turn into a struct even if the module doesn't exist? Answer is no. <laughs> uh, but if I then define the module, like I did this in IEX, I just made a map which had a struct key that didn't the module didn't exist for, and then shortly after I just defined the module in the same interpreter. Suddenly the the struct was a struct and not just a map with a struct key. <laughs> yeah, that was immediate, which was interesting. Um, yeah, I mean it's based on the same thing, so it yeah. kind of makes sense. I think I tripped over this when I was an Elixir newbie when I was using the the map functions on a struct and yeah. uh, added the wrong keys or something to it. And uh, then also had some kind of broken in-between thing. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that at that point, yeah, you probably broke the struct. Yeah. <laughs> Structs are interesting, but they're very useful. Uh, but sometimes you don't want a library to generate a hundred of them for a very small API. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... You mentioned a little bit about the process of of doing the stipend. Have you have you been involved with like reviewing stipend requests and that kind of thing? Like you said, you said you were in the security working group, and I'm I'm curious because I don't think a lot of our listeners necessarily know what like how the, this whole stipend thing works and like what you can do with it and what what you should be doing with it. Um. Yeah. um yeah, so I mean, to give the full intro on everything stipends, uh, it's probably better to talk some to somebody from the Erlang Foundation itself. Yeah, I'll try to pull someone from yeah. there and actually have them talk in depth on um, stipends and the work. But... Yeah, um, but I've seen other stipends being created before, not necessarily implemented, but at least somebody came up with defining a scope. Um, the idea really here is that it is something um, that benefits the whole ecosystem or at least a substantial part of it. 
Um, and it is not something, I mean, I can't sell the product I'm doing at a company to the Erlang Foundation. Like uh, it has to be something, yeah, for kind of the common good. Um, and then basically, yeah, you just have to define what you want to do. So you have to describe what you're doing, why you're doing it, how much time you need, or basically money you need for it, and all those kind of things. Um, there is kind of a desired format of this. Uh, if uh, it's on the Erlang Foundation website, there's a stipend thing in the menu where you see a form to fill out for a stipend. Um, but most of the stipends I've seen so far were done via working groups. So um, that kind of helps because you already have a few people that know what it's about. They all uh, told you if they think it's useful, kind of the working group can uh, endorse it as well, which also kind of produces a different image of the whole thing. Um, and in the end, you just um, you just send it in, and there is a group. I I'm not sure if it's the Erlang Foundation board or if it's a separate group, but it for sure has some some of the same people uh, in there, and um, they will have a look and let you know, and maybe also want a few changes on it. Um, as soon as as that is done, it's rather simple. Really, you can start your work. Um, there are some very helpful people at the Erlang Foundation that can help you with, for example, I needed to put all of these things or I wanted to put all of these things into the Erlang Foundation uh, GitHub organization. I didn't have rights for that and people were happy to help me to make all of that work. And yeah, in the end, as described in your stipend, you sent them an invoice and they're uh, rather fast and uh, um, yeah, I pay your invoice. That's about it. Sounds straightforward. Yeah, I, I actually hope people look into this because like there's a bunch of working groups. I've been talking in to like the education and learning working group, the marketing one. I've been like there's a machine learning working group that's fairly active right now. <laughs> that's actually a really good channel just to follow along if you want to kind of track that space. And you said you're in the security one. Are there mm -hmm. any others that I'm forgetting right now? Um, one that is probably very relevant for the context right now is the, um, I think they're called framework and libraries or something. It's rather new. Um, oh. I think the idea is to kind of be the working group that pushes libraries kind of in any area that would be useful. Um, I'm not involved there, so I don't know it in detail. Um, um, and the other one that's probably also relevant is the, uh, what was it, build and packaging, which is also quite active all around the very foundational tools like um, yeah, documentation with XDoc and Rebar and you know all those kind of very central, uh, more like uh, infrastructure cornerstones of the ecosystem. I'm, I'm sure I missed quite a lot, um, <laughs> but... Uh, oh, that's, yeah. that's plenty more than I had, so... <laughs> Um, now, what was kind of the, the most interesting or fun or maybe challenging parts of building out this library? Were there things that surprised you along the way? Um, not really. I think I had a good overview of what I'm going to build. I spent quite some time 
before looking at the standards and also when I proposed this I looked even more so I had a good idea of what I'm doing. Um, I think most fun was when I just basically worked for one and a half weeks straight um, without actually trying it out. I mean I had unit tests for things but I didn't actually try anything. And I there's this uh, compliance testing framework for the certification, which is yeah. actually open for anyone. You don't have to pay. You only pay to get the stamp in the end. Um, but basically, um, I opened up the tool, I set things up, and I right off the bat passed like 75% of the tests of the first test plan that I selected, which uh, was quite rewarding. Um, I kind of expect to nothing to work, essentially, at first. But um, yeah, that was quite cool. Yeah, that does sound satisfying. Uh, <laughs> I did some library work, not for the EDF, uh, but for uh, for the Changelog podcast at one point where I built out their ID3 uh, encoding and decoding library, including like chapter support, which was what they actually wanted. So they were using, I think, FFmpeg to edit their ID3 tags uh, because they hadn't found a library they really liked for it. ID3 is the metadata thing from MP3, right? Yes, it's a okay. it's a general uh, metadata format, but it was built or it was only used for MP3s. <laughs> I think actually, it probably works fine in OGG and etc. But I think those also come with a metadata format, so I'm not sure it's as relevant there. But yeah, uh, it's, it's what Winamp uses to used to use <laughs> to show you <laughs> artists and song and. Uh, where you can check out which genre things are. And, and like, I wish I had a testing framework for that. I wish mm -hmm. there was a real uh, spec because the spec is kind of, uh, uh, yeah, dubious at times. It's like, I could read this two or three ways. Hmm. <laughs> What's the true way? Well, turns out the true way is whatever the most clients you can find have implemented. <laughs> and then there's a, just huge chunks of, uh, of feature space, like API space, I guess, spec space um, on that thing that are like cool things that I implemented or me and a colleague implemented. And we don't actually know if we implemented them correctly because we don't know <laughs> of a single client that uses it. <laughs> <laughs> like the the opportunities for putting uh merch messaging in your metadata <laughs> <laughs> triggers for uh, triggers for fireworks it's like yeah there's a lot in there <laughs> there's okay. a bunch of stuff uh but there were also weird things where it's like oh this podcast player won't show the chapters if we use one of the allowed in text encodings for titles uh <laughs> So if we switch the default, uh, yes, yes, then it will work by default. Okay. <laughs> oh, this one uh, actually complains if we have the re the required null byte at the end because it's kind of optional. Like there, there were a ton of those types of, of weird things. I would have loved to have a, like a comprehensive test suite to tell <laughs> me whether I was right or wrong. Yeah, that was pretty awesome with the OpenID Foundation. Not all of them were perfect. I found quite a few uh, corner cases in their test suite as well. No. Um, I mean, there's just tiny things like uh, 
you have to set a test uh, credential. And I just put in one, two, three, four, because it doesn't matter. I'm just testing against a test service. And then for certain things, it uses hashing algorithms and it complains if you don't give it enough bytes. And, <laughs> you know, you just get a very cryptic error out of the depth of this uh, conformance testing suite, not something like you should put more than four characters here. And, uh, but yeah, in general, it worked really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could see that happening. It's like, oh, we just need to do something with this input to, to do something sane with it. And then, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it kind of leaks into the testing. Uh, that's interesting. I think that the most interesting standard I ever implemented was, um, a Swiss, uh, standard between banks to send transactions. Ooh, I hear a lot of things about bank transactions and um, what formats they use. I think it was 10 years ago, and I opened up the standard, and the first thing it says is you can decide between the uh, floppy disk version of the standard and the tape version of the standard. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yes. <laughs> Which one did you, you go use for? The floppy disk one, it doesn't work anywhere. <laughs> oh, so, so it's actually just tape. Yeah. Uh, one of them had null terminated strings, um, and one of them had um, basically just fixed uh, um, sizes of the fields, hmm. and only the fixed sizes of the fields actually work. And uh, and some banks also do it a bit differently, so you kind of have this huge if um, that for every bank you do it a bit differently. It was uh, quite entertaining. That matches my experience with SAML. <laughs> <laughs> Because like there were, so there was this federation, it's a Swedish education federation thing where essentially like all schools can connect to this federation, all service providers in the school sector can connect to this thing and it will help them connect to um, like the IDPs. So you can sign in with your school, with your municipality, with your city, whatever the setup is. Of course, municipalities are backed by assorted different systems like yeah. usually there's an active directory involved but usually there's also like this big honking municipality management system <laughs> and there's like two really major actors in that space for one thing they don't do the same things when it comes to what they expose over saml <laughs> but also they are kind of like the saps of the world and stuff it's like everything is customized to every customer so good luck getting the same results out of two different places. Um, also, notes to everyone, don't trust like national personal identifiers. <laughs> like we have a personal number in Sweden. Municipalities just made some up when people don't have them because not everyone has one. <laughs> <laughs> so they made up invalid ones, which was very helpful to our system. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, integrating things like it's very, very nice when there is a standard that is actually kind of strict, where, where it's mm -hmm. like you can't actually deviate from this. Uh, there are if there are things that can prevent deviation, that's that's the best. But yeah, I mean, um, I already built in the uh, quirks config for the OpenID implementation. There's uh, currently yeah. there's only two things in there, but I, I there's probably going to be more. But the first one is 
a simple one. If you want to do local testing and you don't have HTTPS, which is one of the requirements, mm. you want to disable it. But I also put in one where you just ignore one of the must criteria of the specification because Microsoft decided not to do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> just like if you, um, if you, if you load the provider metadata, the provider configuration, there's a field that's saying issuer and that mm. has to match kind of the value you gave it to look up that document and kind of the URL. It just doesn't. <laughs> so, yeah. If you're big enough, you are the standard. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I hope this thing stays small, but um, it might grow a bit. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a separate library at a certain point. It's like, yeah, just just gross, <laughs> just too much. And after a while, it's going to be OIDCC quirks. <laughs> so yeah. this says 3.0.0 RC5. Is it a, still a release candidate? No, um, that was back when I sent you the message to do oh. this. Um, by now, um, there is a 3.0.0, a 3.0.1 with a bug fix, and the first uh, beta version for 3.1.0, because um, I found some missing stuff already. And uh, some other uh, guy um, that opened a few tickets um, is, I think, currently testing them. So I might release a free zero one soon as well. Oh, nice progress. This is what we call velocity. <laughs> it's like <laughs> when you release something, that's when you find out what's broken about it. Yeah. But yeah, all all, all of the libraries are um do have a stable release by now. Yeah, so and the libraries now are it's like the the Erlang library, which is kind of the core bit, but then there's a few more that combine with it. Um, yeah, so there's the, the core. Um, it basically contains um, functions, uh, just kind of the, yeah, really the core of things, like give me an authorization URL. Uh, it's not redirecting you anywhere. It doesn't know about servers and all of that kind of stuff. It just can, yeah, it's the primitives. Um, and then I um, have two libraries, one for Cowboy uh, in Erlang and one for Plug in Elixir which uh, yeah, supplies plugs for you or in Cowboy, uh, it's, uh, how is it called, middlewares and handlers, um, just to ease integration into these. Um, and for Phoenix, I also included a little generator. So um, you can basically just run the thing, tell it what your authorization server is, and it will kind of bootstrap you so you can get started with the whole thing. So you get some routes and controllers, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, actually, no, there is a controller. I um, no. I was just thinking how I did it. Yeah, there is a controller. Yeah, I guess it could have been entirely plugs, but uh, it seems like it would make sense to make a controller at, one, at some point. Yeah, I needed some kind of callbacks for you to react to things. Like, mm. for example, um, as soon as the login succeeded, that is a redirect back from the from the server and... Uh, from the login provider and it does some internal requests and then it kind of says now you're locked in but what do we do with that like do you want to put this in a session do you want to create your own token do you i mean you can do whatever you want with this and um so basically um it now generates your controller and first is a plug which actually does all that callback logic for you then it just calls a normal action and the default 
um, generator, it just puts a thing in there where it just sets the session with your username. Um, and that's kind of it. But obviously, you can do whatever you want from there. That sounds very reasonable. <laughs> All right. I think we're coming up on our end of time. So before I let you go, is there anything you would like to plug or encourage our listeners to go out and do? Uh, do you want them all to star your repository on GitHub or is there uh, elsewhere that you want the traction? I mean, yeah, I would be very happy if people actually went and tried out that new integration. Um, I will also be having a talk that will hopefully be accepted. It's just, I just applied for a talk to um, yeah, make sure that people actually hear about this. I would be very happy for any feedback. Um, if if you like it, if it's working for you, if it's not, what is missing, all those kind of things. And um, I also really want to say thank you to the Erlang Foundation to actually sponsor all of this. Um, I think that's really awesome and everyone should consider um, if they would want to be a part of this as well um, uh, via sponsoring or via helping with a working group or maybe doing your own stipend. And yeah, that would be very, very awesome. All right. Thank you very much. And also, of course, thank you to our sponsors, uh, Underjord and Groxio, career fuel for programmers. I really like putting the slogan in. Uh, that's it for this episode of Beam Radio. Thank you for having me. Hope you catch us next time. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs>